0: from third generation real estate attorney and new york press club award-winning podcaster hal coopersmith this is brokers angle
1: Welcome to Broker's Angle. I'm Hal Coopersmith. We have a great episode for you where we give you pointers about the commercial rent tax and our 30 minute or less interview is with Andrew Stein and Burt Rosenblatt of Vicus Partners who say some
2: wonderful things, including this. You know, I find that, you know, people are inundated with marketing stuff, but if you can present them with information that is timely and is like, pretty unique to what they're dealing with, then then they tend to stand up and listen to that more than they would like the million other things that they're getting bombarded with every day. But first,
1: Brokers Angle is sponsored by the law firm of Coopersmith & Coopersmith, a boutique real estate law firm specializing in commercial and residential real estate for over 87 years. This, of course, is attorney advertising, so we are obligated to say prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.
3: But Hal, you have already eclipsed your father and grandfather. That is very kind
1: of you, Richard. So a lot of brokers are familiar with real estate tax escalations in a lease, but one thing that can be an additional cost to a tenant that brokers should know about is the commercial rent tax, which is separate from real estate taxes. And if a tenant is paying more than $500,000 per year in rent, in Manhattan, south of 96th Street, and above Murray Street, they should know about it.
3: So what is the commercial rent tax? It is a tax of 3.9% imposed upon tenants paying a rent of 500000 or more just for the privilege of renting a commercial space in Manhattan.
1: The privilege of renting a commercial space in Manhattan.
3: Yes, that's it. And in 2017, New York City amended the law so that it affects tenants in that zone you just referred to, and others that have more than $10 million in net income per annum.
1: So we've already said a lot here. To summarize, it's a tax of 3.9% if a tenant has a privilege of paying over $500,000 per year in rent in Manhattan or has a net income of over $10 million.
3: And Hal, the tax is only payable in a certain part of Manhattan, south of 96th Street and north of Murray Street. Accordingly, it doesn't apply to Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, or Staten Island.
1: So what's important here is that if tenants could be subject to the commercial rent tax, a broker should advise a tenant ahead of time. And if you consult a lawyer before an LOI is executed, there could be ways to reduce the commercial rent tax burden. And that would make tenants very happy. So with that, let's go to our 30-minute or less interview with Andrew Stein and Burt Rosenblatt of Vicus Partners. So we're speaking with Andrew Stein and Burt Rosenblatt of Vicus Partners. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Hal.
0: So, how did you two guys meet? So uh, we were working. Um, we were working for uh, for another another broker a guy named Richard Schlesinger, who had a boutique tenant rep shop. He was extremely successful and extremely smart. And I think we both landed there because we were we were inspired by him. And uh, Bert, was, uh, Bert was a big shot with an office and I was starting out <laughs> in, the, uh, in the bullpen and I just basically sat there and listened to what Bert said and did on the phone and uh, figured out how to, how to do the business pretty much by listening to him from the bullpen. Bert, what were you doing that made you a big shot? Well, I
2: would hardly call myself a big shot, but, uh, Andrew just did. Yeah. <laughs> he was being nice. But I think what happened was I was, uh, I was at Newmark prior to being with this company. And, uh, so I had a little bit more visibility into real estate and, uh, I was always good on the phone. So basically I was good at getting hired. Um, and then what really like Sort of clicked for me was that uh, Andrew was better at executing than I was, and so it, you know, spawned this really like decades long friendship slash partnership where you know we would have this pretty like potent one two punch where I could get us in the room, uh, he could help us get hired, and then he could get us, uh, you know, to get the thing over the finish line, which is no small feat, Um, and we've done that you know, several hundred times in the last 20 years. Um, but I think that the the main takeaway that we got from that small shop was that, you know, you can do it, right? You don't have to be CBRE or Cushman and Wakefield or JLL. Um, that, you know, it's just at the end of the day, it's about meeting somebody at the right time um, and uh, getting them to like and trust you. You know, and those are really the most important factors, right? Trust is everything in this business. But I also think that you have to kind of like your clients and they have to kind of like you. And if you don't, like at a baseline, it's it's problematic. I'm not saying you can't do business, but it makes it a lot harder.
1: And Andrew, what were some of the things that you observed from the bullpen that Burt was doing that kind of passed off to you?
0: Burt just had a way of being incredibly clear um with with strangers on a cold call of of the value that that he can add the value that we can add and um he was was really fearless in terms of presenting it and putting it out into the world and then also his clarity about what the what the value of a tenant side broker was was something that that we we both believed to be true and it's it's hard to get on the phone with a stranger and it's like all right go tell me, tell me why this is important. And he just really had pretty unique ability to jump right in and do that and articulate that in a way where people would go, okay, I get it. That makes sense. Let's, let's, uh, let's sit down for whatever, 10 minutes, a half an hour and, and talk further. And Bert, what were some of those techniques that
1: made you good on the phone?
2: I mean, I think it's a a lot of the stuff that's been written about, but it's a funnel, right? So, uh, you know the basic concept is, uh, and
0: you know, don't don't give away the secret sauce <laughs> of what you said. But I I, I think I'll, I'll jump in because it's sometimes easier not to talk about yourself. Um, I I think that what what he was able to do was was really get to the heart of of what the issue is. And so you're kind of doing two things when you're trying to have one of these. First, first conversations, you're trying to break through the barrier of you're calling me, you're interrupting my, my day, my life, I don't want to talk to you. He, and, and Bert just had a, had a, a way of, of getting through to people and presenting what he had to say in a way that made it both fun and informative. All right. So, Bert, I'm going to turn
1: it to you to say something nice about Andrew. Right. (laughs) What makes Andrew so great at execution?
2: I think the thing that Andrew brings to the table, which is really unique, is he can just, um, you know, uh, a master chess player can see whatever it is now. Now a computer is better than any human. But, you know, it used to be if you could see, you know, five to seven moves ahead, you were, you know, just like a total rock star savant. And. I just feel like what Andrew brings to the table is he can just smell things um, that other people can't. And I think the example that we always give is so 10 years ago, uh, we met this guy named Jake Schwartz, who was just graduating from Wharton. And we, uh, the three of us, Andrew, Jake, and I all sort of had a bromance, and we started a separate business called com, which was essentially a lead gen site for real estate. Um, and, you know, we probably made a million dollars off of that over the last 10 years. So I wouldn't call it a huge success. And it only but...
0: cost us a million five.
2: <laughs> right. And pay-per-click and Facebook ads and no, but we, no, was, we, we made money from it, it. It was mildly profitable, but the real value that came out of that was that, uh, Jake then became the CEO of general assembly. Um, and, uh, we ended up doing about a hundred thousand feet of leasing deals with them and, it wouldn't have happened. It's sort of like a, an ideal test case for how we work together. So, you know, I was able to meet Jake and, you know, it was just really clear that he was somebody special. Um, I introduced him to Andrew. Andrew agreed. Um, and then we got hired. Uh, you know, they they signed our exclusive to do like space number one. And it was essentially like, OK, I had this signed piece of paper with like these four young Ivy League guys with a, you know, as far as I knew, a dollar and a dream, like they really didn't have, I didn't know how they were going to make the thing go. And I basically turned to Andrew and I said, look, I said, we got hired. I don't know what to do. I said, will you go meet with these guys? So he said, sure. So he goes down to meets him at the Ace Hotel and he meets the four founders. And he came back and he was like, this is a thing. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, this is real. And I think that, you know, there there's a lot of reasons for that. That he's able to kind of like figure that out. But I think that he's just like an incredibly good judge of character and he can tell when somebody's like a winner. And, uh, you know, there there was also other information that I didn't know, and Andrew found out at this meeting about you know who some of these founders you know family was and who they were connected to, which sort of made it seem like okay, this is a thing because at least we knew there was like real money there. But it was a, a really a, a team effort to get that first space done, and then within four months, like everybody in the tech world knew about these folks. And then it was just, you know, we got to hang on and we were fortunate enough to hang on. And then everybody on the street wanted them and we were fortunate enough to hang in there and hang in there. So, but that's, I think, you know, the reason that Andrew is so good and he's repeated this, you know, literally dozens of times, you know, most recently, and I don't know if you want to get into it, but with this whole charter school business that we've, uh, that we've started and now that we've become like, pretty, uh, pretty well known in. And that was really all Andrew, you know, there was a relationship through an attorney that we knew um, that we liked, but who was a former Edison schools, like in-house counsel type guy. And uh, he had this, you know, this charter school in the Bronx with no money and, you know, seemingly like even like less prospects. And Andrew just spun it into like a 45,000 square foot development deal. Um, you know, that's is spitting out, continues to spit out a pretty substantial commission every year to us. And then that was the beginning of it. And then it's just, it's just snowballed from there. So now we've got, you know, charter schools that are just calling us unsolicited. So it's a little niche, but I, I think that the the key to it and why I sort of highlight it for Andrew is, is that really complicated, not easy to do these sorts of deals. Most brokers shy away from them. And I Totally get why I mean it's they're not easy, you know it's a heck of a lot easier to represent Gibson Dunn and you know renew their lease you know on Sixth Avenue or whatever it is or move them from point A to point B than to do a deal like this, but the difference is there's not as many people that are chomping at the bit to get that work, and uh there's more hair on it there's more you know what I would call uh barriers to entry in terms of like knowledge that you need, and as a result. You know, if you you can get in there, it can be a very lucrative niche. Well, I
1: wanted to actually talk about charter schools, so I'm glad that you brought that up. You had that opportunity with a charter school. What were the steps that you needed to learn? And then you mentioned hair on the deal. What's sort of the the hair on the deal and and how do you develop a a niche like that?
0: Well, I think that... um it really started with a relationship, like many things do. We had, we were, we were in a Regis like co-working space. We were sitting next to a a guy who became a friend who is a, has a extensive charter school practice. He was working, he was representing a school and they had a need and they were having a lot of problems getting their deal done. He knew what, what we did and we sat down and He said, essentially, hey, will you help me figure this out? And I looked at it and I thought, look, you know, they need a lot of space. They have a defined geography where they need need to be. And uh, my friend is, um, my friend is their advisor. So yeah, of course we will. So we we sat down with them and, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of minutia that matters in charter school deals. Um, the, charter, the charter school landscape has changed significantly um, since, uh, since we started. There's now revenue uh, streams for rent that didn't exist back then. So when we did the first one, charter schools had to figure out how to pay their rent out of their per pupil allocation, which is inherently unfair it was what it was. So you, it was really it was it was understand it was finding the needle in the haystack of, of the building that was zoned appropriately that uh, that was vacant that was there was nothing built appropriately so you had to in addition to those two things find a find an owner with the wherewithal to spend the money to build out the space which was a significant amount of, of money to do that um and get them comfortable with the risk which which it's it's both great and it's not great it's it's great in that charter schools get renewed every 5 years so there's always the chance that they that they won't get renewed and that's really bad if you've just spent millions of dollars building out a space um, and the risk is palatable if you understand what's involved in a in a school being renewed or not being renewed. And so part of what we had to do was really find the landlords who were even open to having a conversation with with us about it, and bring in bring in the bring in the appropriate people to walk them through what it looks like to deal with the authorizer, what would have to happen for a school not to be renewed, who the leadership of the school was both academically and financially, and just you know, a lot of moving parts, and get them comfortable with all of that. And I mean, it's a lot of minutia, and people's eyes might be might be glazing over. But I looked at that, and I I thought, all right, this is this is more detailed and more interesting. And and you know, as it becomes complicated and less of a quick easy hit, there's going to be less people chasing it. And so we, you know, I I spoke to spoke to my friend, and and I remember going into Bert's office and sort of downloading with him of, uh, you know, this is a possibility. What do you think? And, um, you know, we've probably done a dozen of these since. You mentioned that
1: there are fewer people chasing those sorts of deals after you did the first deal. How were you able to leverage that to other deals?
0: You know, I think it's, it's like anything you, you, whether it's a real estate deal or, or, you know, getting to know the, your people in, in your office, you you do the first one you you get yourself out there you connect with them afterwards and one thing leads to another and you meet more people in this world so yeah i mean i think look we're we're always trying to figure out how
2: to market ourselves more efficiently um you know the the interesting thing about being a commercial real estate broker right is it's still it's still kind of Done the same way it was done thirty or forty years ago. It's basically relationship-based. Clients making referrals, trusted advisor friends making referrals. I think that what happens in these little niches, which is really good for people to be aware of, is is that if you start to dig into these niches, everybody knows each other in these niches, and so you know they're and real estate is a spectator sport in New York, so everybody's talking about real estate. And everybody wants to know somebody that thinks they can solve the problem, and when you start hearing our name you know two or three times by different people, it starts to get a lot easier to get traction. Um, I think the other thing that we we did do was on one of these deals uh, that that Andrew principally was you know the person pushing the boulder up the hill and getting it over the finish line. We uh, got nominated for Most Ingenious Year of the Year Award at REBNY. And we wrote a piece that was, you know, pretty well written, that was pretty well received. Um, And we did send that to people and we got a bunch of calls because of that. So like the fact-based selling, you know, I find that, you know, people are inundated with marketing stuff, but if you can present them with information that is timely and is like pretty unique to what they're dealing with, then then they tend to stand up and listen to that more than they would like the million other things that they're getting bombarded with every day. So I think those two things are good. We did do a mailing, you know, that we started talking about, you know, some of the deals we've done. And so there, there have been some like what I would call traditional marketing efforts, but mainly it's been word of mouth. Um, but we're always thinking of ways, you know, to... To change that and to throw kerosene on it. One of the issues with our business is probably in the same as the laws that. You know, you have these clients that they just grow, you know, really rapidly, you know, they go, I mean, we have clients that's like, okay, in two years, they're a hundred million dollar business. And, you know, it's just not the nature of being a service provider that you can grow like that. But, you know, we're always trying to figure out like, well, what's, somebody's going to figure it out, right? Somebody's going to figure out how to scale this thing through technology. But we haven't, uh, we haven't cracked the code by any means. <laughs> and you started Vicus Partners in 2007. Yes. Right? So what made you guys think we should do this on our own and start our own firm? I mean, that one was really easy. I mean, basically what happened was Andrew and I got lucky in that our boss retired in '07, And so as, as brokers know, one of the big concerns when you're moving firms is, you know, am I going to get paid on all the deals that I ha- that I'm working on or that I've made? Um, And so at the time, you know, our boss, uh, I was just having my first kid and, you know, my boss owed us, uh, you know, collectively over $300,000. And we were like, you know, how's this all going to play out? And, um, you know, he paid us every penny because he was retiring. And it was like, you know, this was happening on his terms to a certain degree. So it was essentially this very, very short moment in time where we both had enough money and we had enough sort of traction in the business to be able to do this without really a lot of thought. And then the other thing was that you know I think did make it easier for us is you know we weren't at CB or JLL so we didn't have this like brand behind us and what we find is is that you know there's just an incredible amount of um you know kind of anxiety among brokers at bigger shops that they have to be at like one of these big shops in order to be able to do what they do. We, we, we don't believe that, but you know, there's a, there's just an incredible amount of, um, brainwashing for a better way to lack of a better way to say it that goes on at these places that makes folks feel like they have to stay you know in places where they're really not that happy but so that was really it we just got we had enough money and we had this moment of time where our boss was going to let us go pay us he wasn't gonna hold our feet to the fire with respect to non-competes and you know, the way we looked at it was, look, we were making this guy $2 million a year and, you know, uh, we were going to give ourselves a big raise because instead of giving him a half a million bucks a year, we can just rent a Regis and, you know, pay 5000 bucks a month, right? So the math didn't seem so scary and we called all our key clients and we're just like, hey, would you care if we – started our own firm, and every one of them was like, go for it. You know, we didn't we didn't work with you because of the brand. We worked with you because of you. So at that point, and we always say this, we felt like we were actually being risk-averse by starting our own company because we could control uh, a lot of the uh, – The unknowns. The unknowns.
0: We also – I think this is true for Bert, but I definitely – for a long time, had wanted to start my own thing. I wanted, I, I wanted to, you know, be be in charge of my own destiny and have my own company. And the idea of I just didn't want to do it alone. And so, you know, it, I just got really, really lucky when when I met Bird and and the the partnership that developed and and the the synergies of how we work and that we have different skill sets and. So I, I think that when that moment in time came up and and our old boss um, really gave us his blessing and support to go do this, it was it was just a no brainer. It was it was such a exciting moment to be to look look at look at what was in front of us and say, hey, wow, well, we can really go do this. And it was I, I can't imagine working for anybody else again, at this point, having, having done this.
2: And how many people are with the firm now? So we have 20 people. Um, and we're trying to structure the business going forward as a little bit more of a consulting practice. We've started to get some consulting assignments. Um, and so we're really trying to focus more on operations than on necessarily pure brokerage. We're not, we don't have a, brokerage firm in the sense that we have, you know, 15, you know, young guys sitting in the bullpen like, you know, cold calling everybody humanly possible. Um the business is really sort of flowing in from the partners and then it um it, it's really just a matter of like executing as effectively as humanly possible. And what we found interestingly enough is if you hire smart young people and you pay them a salary, you're probably better off doing that than you know having like a young broker that's you know desperate for money and is like you know maybe looking to cut some corners. You know what we really want is we just want the final product, right, which is our service to be as you know as good as humanly possible. So that's kind of the differentiator, right? Is that it's it's uh, it's it's not it's not a heavy duty sales shop in the way that other firms are. Um, I mean, sales is definitely a component, but we want we really hire for smart, and then just figure figure out where to plug them in. What was it like with that first hire, that first few people that you were bringing onto the team? We made a lot of mistakes. I mean, like everybody does. I mean, we made a lot of mistakes, and uh, like you know, what? we tried to learn from them. Well, I think one of the mistakes that brokerage firms in general make, right, is that you don't pay these people, and so you sort of feel like well, what the heck, you know, I don't pay him. I wouldn't want to have a beer with him, but, you know, maybe he can make me some money, right? And we just think that's the wrong answer, you know. uh, uh, We did make that mistake a few times and uh, we really tried to course correct. So I think that's a big one is they have to be a cultural match. You have to really – it's sort of, again, like going back to the thing about your clients. You have to, you know – on a base level like your clients. And I think on a base level, you have to like everybody in your business. If you don't, it's it's not good. I think that's it. I mean, I think the the only other thing that that is really sort of unique about us, Hal, is that we do also have practice groups. So we're really only a tenant rep firm. And then uh, what we've built out over the years is these practice groups. So we have you know, a recovering lawyer, I say that tongue-in-cheek, that is running the law firm division, right? No offense to Re- this current lawyer. Right, exactly, right. You don't need to recover from anything. You're killing it, but for the rest of your brethren out there. Um, and uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, a former hedge fund guy that's running our finance division. We have a former advertising madman type guy running our advertising division, a former non-profit person running our on our nonprofit division, we have the former head of the Brooklyn Navy Yard running our Brooklyn office. So, you know, that's, that's, again, just going back to niches. Like what we found, Andrew and I, early on was that, you know, the typical broker, at least when I got in in the 90s, the idea was okay, you want to go and you want to canvas. The biggest tenants in New York, right, so you want to call Goldman Sachs and Blackrock and Facebook and you can't even call Facebook right who are you gonna call <laughs> right but but uh you know the the uh the idea was that you know that that's where the money was right but the what we found was is that it's actually the opposite of that right where if you're whittling around the edges like where we started to where our income started to go up exponentially was when we just forgot about that, right, which we call the fat side of the plate and we just started whittling around the edges and doing, you know, smaller deals, which is really how we cut our teeth, 2 to 10,000 square foot deals and doing a lot of them. And now we get business from many other brokerage firms that we would consider competitors, but their they- business model doesn't make sense for them to do those size deals. So it's really the whittling around the edges and then and then and a, uh, a lot the of those groups. a lot of those
0: smaller smaller companies have grown. We've grown with them and you know, our average deal size has grown. So it's it was a it was a great way to, to launch into it. Yeah.
2: And then the practice groups is just an outgrowth of that. You know, again, it's just if you get really super niche, you know, like if you're if the pitch is I was you, right? I'm a former executive director of a non for profit. And I'm meeting with an executive director of a non-for-profit, right? There's value in that. There are not that many of them you know, doing commercial real estate in Manhattan right now. So that's a differentiator. So it's, that, was the, that was the concept. We didn't know if it would work five or six years ago, but it, it has. And, and like anything else, it's all about the person you have in that role. You can have somebody that looks great on paper and then in reality it's not working. But the idea works, right? That pitch works and as you're training
1: these people who you're bringing on to the different practice groups how do you get them
2: within your culture and how do you teach them to do what you do so we've we've looked into this a lot and i have um i've hung out a lot with you know some of the people that do all the training at the big shops and the really interesting thing is is that i don't think training really works in our business like i know that Um, Specifically with CBRE, I think that it's less than 10% of the people that they train actually end up making it. I know that, you know, and obviously we're not in finance, but I know that, like, if you're at Merrill Lynch and you're in their training program, I think it's less than 5% that make it. So it's really, really, I think, not something that you can teach in, in a classroom setting. The only way that we've been successful training brokers, and I think we have a lot higher percentage than the big shops, is by hiring people that are smart, putting them on deals, essentially giving them money, right, Um, which most places don't do, giving them an opportunity to learn the business. And then over time, some of them, not all of them, and it's probably a minority, some of them start to originate their own business, right? And that's the reality, and that's sort of the holy grail. And the problem is, I just don't think you can teach somebody to be a great salesperson. I think that, you know, in many respects these people are are who they are, you know, and I always say like, you know, you're going to you know you're going to be a, a good hunter if you were like that kid that always made friends in the sandbox or just, you know, was always like always throwing the parties and, you know, that's the that's sort of the skill set that you're solving for. But interestingly, You know, you you think you might have the right kid and then you get them in that situation and it's just, you know, and I guess I'll just end on this note. The great book, Liar's Poker, you know, about Solomon Brothers, right? They got the best and the brightest and I just remember Michael Lewis always making this comment that was fascinating that after the training at Solomon Brothers, right, you would have to go on to the trading floor. And when you went on to the trading floor, there was always at least one kid per class, that couldn't get out of the elevator. And so what the kid would do is he would ride in the back of the elevator, hiding from the world <laughs> because he didn't want to go onto the trading floor. And the trading floor is a very intimidating place. They were breaking phones. They were you know, acting like lunatics. But um, I think that that's the moral of the story, right? Is that you can train, you can train, you can have a good resume, but you know, can you get out of the elevator? And that's the X factor, and I just don't think anybody's been able to figure that out, us included. But I think that the reason we have a higher percentage of keeping people is because we have work, and it's easier to find people that are good at doing work than getting work. Well, that's a great note to end things on, but I do want to ask this one question
1: to every single guest. Best piece of advice you would give to another broker?
2: I would say always tell the truth. I mean, I know that's, uh, you know, <laughs> we're in a much maligned industry, but I mean, I just feel like, and and maybe this sounds hokey, but I just, I really believe that we make more money because we're honest. And I think that your reputation is everything in this business. And I think that everybody knows who the bad apples are, you know, brokers are message passers honors and, uh, you know we we love to gossip and everybody knows like who's you know what this one's reputation is and what that one's reputation is and i really think that stuff matters
0: i would say you have to put the what what's best for the client as the in in the forefront it's all about solving for the client
1: andrew stein Bert rosenblatt thank you for being on the broker's angle
2: thanks for having us thanks hal
1: so that wraps up our interview with andrew stein and Bert rosenblatt for more visit brokersangle.com or follow us on social media at Brokers Angle. And please feel free to email us at angle at brokersangle.com.